Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. It does seem like the search for truth, which was one of the foundational purposes uh, of education really seems to have gotten eroded or corroded or lost um, where right now if you hear college administrators talking a lot of it's just about how to uh, retain interest in enrollment in certain majors and what people's professional prospects are going to be afterwards Uh, where a lot of liberal arts and schools are being challenged and I think the, the most common major is economics. Uh, And then I I know computer science now is shooting up the charts because now it it seems like that's the purpose of education. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I I think that the universities are not just sick. I think that they're on hospice and they've they've veered from their truth seeking mission. And instead, uh, really many professors, in fact, I would argue, depending on the field, most professors, if something ends in studies, it's particularly worse. These are they're not truth seeking. uh, fields, they're basically indoctrination uh, centers, and that's how they look at the classrooms. So it, it, you can think about it like a catechism. They ask certain questions of students, and students respond in certain ways, and they go into the classroom not trying to find truth, but thinking that they already have the truth. And that's incredibly dangerous, not just for students, but for the democracy. pleasure to welcome to Forward modern day philosopher, someone I've admired from afar for quite some time, Peter Bogosian. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. So I'm just going to speak for myself. I was a young angsty teen. And so there was always like an interest in philosophy. But like a lot of other people listening to this, I maybe dabbled in one philosophy course in college and then turned around. uh, I think that was like the first and last philosophy course I took. So how the heck does one actually become a real life philosopher? And I want you to rewind back to, you know, when you were a kid, did you read uh, books that would lead you in that direction? So how does one become a real life philosopher? Well, anybody can be a philosopher. The trick is to be, if you want that path, the trick is to be an academic philosopher. Uh, I've always been interested in philosophy. I've always been interested in really intense things. So uh, I think philosophy is the most intense intellectual pursuit. Uh, Like jujitsu is the most, for me, it's always been one of the most intense physical pursuits. And so- Wait, wait, uh, wait, philosophy. 
the jujitsu of intellectual disciplines. It's just been branded poorly, Peter. That's, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, and that's what Socrates used to do. He used to do a kind of intellectual or almost a cognitive jujitsu, where he would basically ask people if they agreed with themselves. Yes, so. he'd use the method on them and then say, hey, like, uh, pinned you, <laughs> submit, that's submit. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's actually what, and I, that's what I think we've lost. That's what I'm writing a book. In fact, just before our, our conversation, I'm writing a children's book about the young Socrates and he travels a mythical Greek countryside and he has conversations with all different sorts of people because anybody can access the truth regardless of their immutable characteristics. So truth is just not linked to to who we are as people. This sounds like it should be a Netflix series, my friend, freaking young Socrates, and he shows up in the new village. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, thank you. It writes itself. Yes, his, his superpower is reason, and he has conversations across all these divides with different creatures, and it's, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun to write, so. But I guess anybody, anybody can be a philosopher. It just means thinking more deeply and usually systematically about things. Love it, loving wisdom. So you grew up in Massachusetts, and right. when did you imagine that you might even study philosophy? Oh boy, uh, I realized that it was not a very practical thing to do. That's and what I I'm digging my, at, man. Because like we all know right. it's not very practical. So I'm trying to right. figure out, like you know, like how the heck you <laughs> you wound up someplace that yeah, uh, that, that none of the rest of us did. Well, I, I minored in it in uh, I minored in it in as, as an undergraduate. I majored in psychology, but I didn't really like, I like psychology, but it just, it just, I don't know, there was some, something about it that seemed, I don't want to say, say fake. And that's right now we have a replication crisis where we can't reproduce studies in psychology, but it, it just, philosophy really hit me and really answering life's deep questions. Like what does it mean to live a good life? And what kind of death should you have? And what's the nature of friendship? And what are the boundaries? Can you be unjust towards yourself? And what is justice and what is truth? And how do we be fair to people? And I think there was always a, uh, um, I've always had a, a BS detector. It hasn't been very good, but I've honed it over the years. That's one thing philosophy, if done right, will do. It'll hone your BS detector, sometimes. Wow, we need a whole lot more philosophy than in American life, my friend. <laughs> people need, need BS detectors at higher levels. This is what to me is really interesting, and, and I know it's counterintuitive, but the more one studies philosophy, the worse off one's epistemic situation could be. I'll explain that. So epistemology is like how you know. So um, in the believing brain, my friend Michael Shermer ha has a, a part about, I, I personally think this is the greatest insight in all of critical thinking. So why do smart people believe weird things? Smart people believe weird things because they're better at rationalizing to a conclusion. In other words, they're better at coming up with, with uh, bad reasons to believe, or, go, or good reasons, depending how you look at it, to believe their conclusions. One of the things philosophy does is it teaches people how to come up with good reasons for things, even if the things that they're coming up with are false. So it's possible, and I've actually seen this repeatedly, that people who, who are very adept at philosophy and they're adept at making arguments, uh, they get caught in these intellectual rabbit holes where they uh, become very good at coming up with reasons to believe things that are, are morally fashionable. So you minored in philosophy, and then did you end up uh, 
getting a graduate degree in it? I think you did, right? Because you're you must have to be able to teach it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I got a um I got a master's degree in philosophy from Fordham, got a uh, a doctorate in education from PSU and I Portland State, and I did my dissertation on uh, in prisons, and I found questions throughout the history of Western philosophy, and I taught inmates how to desist from crime, using these questions so that they can. Uh, think morally, so how to reason through moral issues with the, with the goal of um, desisting from crime. So who was the first philosopher that had a major impact on you? It must have been uh, relatively early on, like in your teenage years. Yes, it was relatively early on. It was uh, Socrates, and specific, specifically it was both the, the Republic and the Apology. The Apology just blew my mind. I mean, it totally changed my whole world. I read that and I was just forever forever intellectually changed. I mean, here's a guy, Socrates, who's, you know, charged with impiety and, you know, not believing in the gods. He gives this incredible defense. He's found guilty. They let him say a few words. And what does he say? He asks for a reward, right? He asks, he asks, I mean, it's just, it's such a, it's such a mind blowing thing. And then it just talks about the death of Socrates. And when Socrates died, there was something that, indelibly marked centuries of our intellectual exploration that also died. I just had an interview and somebody asked me, what do you, what do you think the most important human invention ever was? And I said, the Socratic method. Um, but, but I would argue it's, it's not just a human invention. Any spacefaring um, civilization would have to have some version of the Socratic method, if not actually the Socratic method. You know, it's kind of like falsification, but in the moral in the moral sphere. You know, how do we fall? How do we move uh, ideas forward? Test them? Have some kind of mechanism? It's basically what science is, but for uh, moral and other questions. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I remember being exposed to various philosophers uh, as an undergraduate, not to the depth that, that you have. Uh, and I do remember certain ideas each philosopher seems to have embedded in our collective culture. Right. One of the, the things that 
I, I know right now, and we'll get to what, what's happened with you and academia, um, where it does seem like the search for truth, which was one of the foundational purposes uh, of education, really seems to have gotten eroded or corroded right. or lost. Um, where right now, if you hear college administrators talking, a lot of it's just about how to uh, retain interest in enrollment in certain majors and what people's professional prospects are going to be afterwards, uh, where a lot of liberal arts and schools are being challenged. And I think the, the most common major is economics. Uh, and then I, I know computer science now is shooting up the charts because now it, it seems like that's the purpose of education. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I think that the universities are not just sick. I think that they're on hospice and they've they've veered from their truth seeking mission and instead uh, really many professors, in fact, I would argue, depending on the field, most professors, if something ends in studies, it's particularly worse. These are, they're not truth-seeking uh, uh, fields. They're basically indoctrination uh, centers, and that's how they look at the classrooms. So it, it, you can think about it like a catechism. They ask certain questions of students, and students respond in certain ways, and they go into the classroom not trying to find truth, but thinking that they already have the truth. And that's incredibly dangerous, not just for students, but for the democracy. My run up against a, a lot of this was in college. And then I went to law school, which is also supposed to be kind of a truth seeking profession, which is uh, a little bit of bunk, <laughs> shall, yeah. shall we say, like you're reading old case law. I mean, that's the way I was trained. I was trained uh, uh, as a lawyer. Uh, I was a lawyer for a brief time. I did pass the bar and all that jazz. Um, but I think that legal studies touches philosophy, uh, at least peripherally, because uh, that there is at least a purported search for truth when you're reading case law and judicial reasoning. Uh, I'm not sure if people still believe that now in this day and age where everything's gotten politicized. But the way I was taught was that these judges were accessing some kind of truth uh, that was beyond their, their own uh, impulses or decision that they were supposed to be impartial and reason their way to uh, a better judgment. Uh, and I know a lot of them even would refer to philosophers at various points in, in their rulings. Yeah. And you didn't, you must not have enjoyed that process or liked the profession because you left. Well, there were certain aspects of studying it that I didn't mind at all. Um, you know, I think the problem with law school is that you become a lawyer after, really. <laughs> like, like, like the study itself, it's like, you know, it's right. kind of interesting uh, and whatnot. Um, the, but then the, the profession of it um, is quite different. I likened it to a pie eating contest where if you win, they give you more pie. Um, that didn't seem like a great way <laughs> to spend um, one's uh, waking hours. And so I, I left to become an entrepreneur. Um, so in your case, you were getting your PhD at Pacific State, you were teaching these inmates, uh, and it must have been somewhat daunting for you to think, hey, I'm going to make a living in this field, because there is obviously a joke about, <laughs> about uh, unemployed or, uh, or unemployable philosophers. So in your case, you must have known that if you were going to do it, academia was going to be the path. Yeah, I never really worried about making a living because I, I knew to speak very Bluntly, I hope this doesn't 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 sound self-aggrandizing, but I knew two things about myself. One, I know that I have a capacity to work that is unparalleled. I work constantly from the moment I wake up. I work at every aspect of my life. So I, I knew that that 
um, I, that increased my odds of success. You know, I come from, you know, my grandparents of immigrants and, and that mentality. Oh, where from? The second, uh, my my uh, dad's parents are from Armenia and they escaped the genocide. And then my mom's parents are from uh, Greece and Italy. Got it. So I'm the child of immigrants, so I, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, so no, so I had that, that um, work ethic and I have that. But, you know, my, my dad would tell me the story when his dad escaped from uh, the, the genocide in Turkey. He would be he was on a, a coal ship and he actually died of lung cancer eventually. But when he would uh, when he was on, they just need him. And when the other guys were on, I won't mention where they're from, they needed three of them. And so this this thing like, you know, you're Armenian, you work hard and, and to succeed, that's what you need to do. That's the other thing we've lost now. We blame it on systems. Uh, so any disparity in an outcome has to be due to a system as opposed to a value that an individual or a culture possesses. I mean, we could talk about that if you want. So yeah, no, I, mean, um, that, that, I mean, that's an interesting one for sure, Peter, because I'm someone who loves, loves, loves entrepreneurs and builders and uh, people who are making positive things happen. And I also think that the systems are kind of uh, messed up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like both, both can be true in my mind. Um, but I, I would agree with you that people have taken something of an either or stance where if someone is failing, it's purely systemic and not... Correct. necessarily born of their uh, individual actions or inactions. And here's the but, and we have a huge but here that I, I'm, I'm certain that we both agree on. And the but for that is it's incumbent upon the society to have a quality of opportunity. So you can never mitigate for, you know, a, a parent who's abusive or, you know, if you look at the incarceration rates, kids have incarcerated, one parent incarcerated, they're seven times more likely to be incarcerated themselves. So, so the goal should be, we want to create systems that are fair by equality of opportunity. But I think that we agree profoundly on what it means to um, that nobody should be disadvantaged because of their race or because of an exogenous characteristic or because they're from some zip code. But there are just fiscal and financial realities that sit in. But I think it's incumbent upon us to think about the problem in terms of equality of opportunity. And, and that's the way, how do we make our institutions more just? How do we give every kid a public education at the first rate? Good food, you know, tasty food, not those shitty little pizzas in the cans uh, when, they, when they go into their classrooms. Are you a parent yourself, Peter? I am. I have two, two kids. Oh, how old? My son is, uh, let's see, my son is t 20. Wow. Uh, my, my daughter is, uh, my daughter's adopted from China. Um, we got her two and a half and she's, she's 15 now. She's just learning to drive. And it's very interesting. Wow. I, I got a, uh, as Portland is really becoming quite a shithole and somebody who I think pretty, pretty sure they stole the car and they smashed into my parked car. So I went to get a, 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 a rental car. It's, it's in the shop and they only had one car left because of COVID. And I got this, this crazy freaking Mustang. Like you open the door and it has like, you know, the horse on the ground. And nice. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, my daughter's learning to drive and she just loves it. I mean, it's such a, I just would never even sit in this car. And it has, it's like the opposite of a Tesla. It's loud and it's jerky. Um, and, and that's uh, what she she's just learning loves, and I like it. Well, she loves driving around in it and she loves hanging out. Uh, well, she loves watching me drive around in it.
This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your Internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. So you had um, this PhD, and then did you transition directly into academia? And you ended up teaching at the uh, same school that you got your doctorate. Is that right? Well, I, I taught. Oh my gosh, I taught at so many universities. I taught. I mean, you know, I I taught at Loyola in New Orleans. I taught at University of Phoenix. I used to fly around the country for them. I, I taught. I mean, I've taught it. You, you name it, I've taught. I mean, I've just taught so many places, uh, and then I. I had a was offered a position at Portland State, and I took that position. It was it was a non tenure track, uh, and it was a he, it was a heavy course load. You know, I I taught a lot of students, and those were big classes. You know, 120 people per class. I mean, big classes, and I taught three classes a term. But even in spite of that, so this is interesting. So I had been teaching before that, in crazy like I would literally wake up. I don't know. I've never told anybody this. So if this is uninteresting, let me know. But oh, I would perceived. wake up <laughs> and I would I would teach morning classes at like University of Portland or Linfield or what have you every day. Then I would go to uh, teach afternoon classes and then I would teach night classes like at DeVry or uh, University of Phoenix or any of these places online. And I would literally teach so many students and then I'd get off at 10 and I'd go to the gym and I'd come home and I would immediately begin writing until I passed out. I would pass out at my computer and I would wake up often to the alarm and then I would just do the whole thing again. And I think, you know, to succeed, not well in philosophy in general, but I think that's that's the kind of thing. And I'm not saying that's a good life or I advocated for any anybody in particular, but I think one thing that's um, an issue is often which relates, I'm saying this because it relates to my earlier comment. Often people become resentful be, at the system because they don't, they feel that they should be more successful than they are. But one of the things that they don't realize is how hard you have to work to be successful. I mean, look at yourself. I mean, holy shit, look what you've done. And that's the other thing. 
you know, the people who are successful, this is another lesson you learned from jujitsu. Uh, the people who are successful, once they're knocked down or they lose a race, they just get up and they keep going and they use that as a learning experience. And that's a value that we need to teach people, not, you know, the system is against you or you didn't succeed. So you might as well quit. No, you just have to have that grit, that determination to keep going. And, and do, doing stuff you love, you know? Well, in my circles, uh, we call it the internal locus of control versus the external, right. which is like if something goes wrong, is it like, oh, did I screw up? Or it's like, oh, were the chips stacked against me uh, in some way? And you're right that grit is the number one quality that determines whether a child is going to be successful over time. Uh, are we teaching our kids enough grit? I can say for myself personally that my kids seem very, very soft <laughs> relative to the way I grew up, uh, which, you know, I, I think part of that is inevitable if you're um, spending, you know, frankly, more generations in this country where my parents didn't know what the heck was going on. So my, my, my brother and I just kind of tried to figure things out and we're left to our own devices an awful lot. Um, so you t taught all over the place and then were offered yeah. this non-tenure track position at Portland State where it seems like right. you were a workhorse and taught a lot of uh, students. I have the sense that you have a fairly long-standing relationship with this institution. Is that right? How many years uh, have, uh, oh, very, have you been there? Very long, very, very long-standing relationship with the institution. And I took the position. It took, I originally got paid $50,000. But remember, I was teaching literally thousands and thousands of students. So to go from what I was doing to teaching, I don't know, let's see, 120 and 80 and 60 or 80 and 80 or something, to go to, from teaching a crazy number of students, and I had great health care too. At that point, were you a parent? Had you settled down where you're like, oh, wow, like, you know, this might be stable? Yeah, I was a, I was a parent. Uh, I, you know, I had my son and we hadn't adopted our daughter yet. So, yeah. So does that mean you've been in Portland for decades? Is that accurate? Yeah, been in, I think, 1999, I think we came here. Now it's decades, uh, brother. It's 22 years. Boy, man. I mean, I cannot believe the state of the city. I, I just am, I'm, the, just just uh, two days ago, anarchists or, and Antifa, et cetera, destroyed area of the downtown that cost $550,000 uh, of, of my money, of the taxpayer, of the citizens' money. And there's just no end in sight. The mayor is just, the mayor is a public disgrace, to be blunt with you. Uh, so I feel like Portland has seen a boom, and then now I know it is kind of the site to some of these uh, protests and conflicts to a higher degree than just about any other community in the country. But you must have seen it also develop tremendously because I, I feel like it's had a boom over the last number of years. Is that right? Yeah, I've seen the city develop and then I've seen it fall in a year and a half to, to substance use disorders where people aren't getting the services they need to, to homelessness. Oh, and the gun deaths, the violence, you know, the, the mayor and the city council got rid of the gun reduction task force team because they said it was racist. And the consequence of that was the... Um, we, we now have have more young young dead black males and now they, they've put in the gun reduction task force but it may be too late uh, I so this is a very very small thing but I was in San Francisco a week and a half ago and I went into a Walgreens to pick up a toiletry and then uh, someone robbed the Walgreens while I was there and 
the staff kind of looked up half-heartedly uh, as he ran out with like a bag full of stuff and it was it just I was looking around at everyone being like so this is happening now and then right. uh, and then someone I was with just shrugged and said San Francisco uh, you know like that that was a matter of course and then I later heard that they might have closed a number of Walgreens in they San did. Francisco That's because correct. that because there was a whole string of uh, robberies that apparently had become um, not just one-offs but there was like a ring Right. And the DA, I think Chase Bourdain is his name. The DA doesn't prosecute those crimes. Uh, and I'm supposed to have a sit down with the DA of Portland, who's we have a mutual friend. And I'm really looking forward to that. I've been smashing him on slamming on t him on Twitter for a year. And so, you know, that's another thing like, how, I mean, that, you know, is, is it like, you know, Okay, so one one take the DA here and I hate to speak for him because I haven't met, met him yet. But, you know, his his uh, philosophy is to, uh, you know, punish murders and the, uh, the harshest, most strict crimes. It's kind of the opposite of the broken windows theory, which we know the evidence is overwhelming for decades now, uh, especially from New York and outwards that that works. And when you, what, what is the consequence of not prosecuting uh, those smaller crimes? I've also heard from uh, police uh, I do jujitsu with, they were telling me that people know that uh, cops no longer come out. So when my car was smashed by someone who stole a car, uh, the actually the woman who lives with us, uh, didn't drive, didn't call the police because the police don't come out for that anymore. They, it takes them an hour and a half to come out for a, a, a kidnapping in progress. But people know this and then they come to Portland knowing this. But it just, it's it, the astonishing thing is it doesn't seem to, to bother the uh, mayor very much. Well, I, I would imagine then people are voting with their feet because that, that's what a lot of people Correct. tend to do in this situation where folks look up and say, Absolutely. you know what, I'm a parent, I've got a family, maybe I should uh, head towards a, toward a suburb someplace. Is that Yep, yep, happening? that's 100% accurate. I know so many friends, uh, so many friends of mine in the middle class are doing that. The problem, though, beside the fact that it leaves the city to be an even bigger dump because the tax revenue uh, degrades, is that people in lower socioeconomic stratus can't leave because they don't have the money to leave. So then they're stuck with the violence and the gangs and the drugs and the filth and the trash and the general incivility and divisiveness. So it really screws over people, poor people. I, I, I mean, I, I don't uh, know some of what's going on on the ground aside from what you see on Twitter occasionally. Which I know you've been very prominent on Twitter. Um, you and I first became acquainted um, during my presidential. Uh, and you first came to, I think, national attention um, when you posted some academic papers that had patently ridiculous subjects um, that somehow passed muster and then were published right. in various low-level academic journals. Uh, and some of these were very humorous. I thought they were very funny. Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you. Not low level academic journals, top journals in their in their field with things related to studies like gender studies. The journals in the field. So describe like the run up to that because that wasn't the first thing you did. I mean, there were uh, I, it sounds like a number of years when you were being exposed to changes in your environment and you were addressing them in certain ways. Uh, and then that was a relatively dramatic <laughs> recourse. Right. So, so how how did the environment change over time, and how many years uh, were you witnessing uh, before you decided to to do that? I, I realized that maybe in 2011, 2012, but I didn't realize that the the, the system itself was creating a kind of uh, fragility and and um, intellectual and emotional uh, brittleness. 
And sooner, soon it, it dawned on me that this madness was coming from certain bodies of literature. And I would follow a, a Twitter feed called New Real Peer Review, where they would uh, post the abstracts and then some of the analyses of articles that were just totally insane that were being published. And remember, seven papers in seven years is tenure. So people were credentialing themselves and getting tenure because they would have these totally deranged ideas. And so we published a buddy, I told my buddy that, you know, following in the, the trails of Alan Sokol, who was a New York, who still is, um, uh, NYU professor of, of mathematics and physics, where he wrote a bogus paper in the late 90s for the premier postmodern journal. And I said, well, we should do that. And so we published this piece, The Conceptual Penis is a Social Construct, and you can find it, you put in the link in the YouTube channel. I thought it was hilarious, uh, but we did it to demonstrate that there are problems in certain fields, and if you forward certain conclusions, those, will, those papers are more likely to get accepted, and that public policies are being formed on that. So we caught mad grief for that. People went nuts, and a lot of those criticisms were justified, you know. The journal wasn't high enough factor, it was too new or whatever. But basically they said, if you wanted to prove what you think you prove, you have to do A, B, C, D, E. So I turned to my buddy and I said, this is awesome, man. They've given us a roadmap, let's do it. And we, we published 20 papers uh, and then the New York, I mean, the Wall Street Journal busted us once we got our seventh publication. And these papers were insane. I mean, one of them even won an award. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Did you publish these under a pseudonym or were they as yourselves or like how were they submitted? Yeah, that was the fatal flaw. We only had one real person, uh, and it was a buddy of mine, Richard Baldwin, who's a 70-something-year-old guy. He was a former professional bodybuilder. That's why a lot of our papers are about bodybuilding. So he let us use his name. So we used his name, uh, but we made up the other names. That's how we got busted, by the way. W one of the things we did was um, we, we gave this person uh, a... Um, we gave this person a, a fake a fake name and a fake degree, and we said that she had a PhD in feminist studies. And uh, somebody called around and found. I mean, the paper was just so in, utterly insane that uh, that journalists saw what the uh, journal editors did not see, and that's what happens when you live in these tight knit knit 
these ecosystems is you just you just don't see how crazy it is because every you, that's also what happens when you call out into call intellectual diversity out of a system when people have the same ideological underpinnings part of the problem is that they just think it's normal to believe things that are just totally untethered to reality one of the great lessons i learned running for president peter was just how institutionalized our country is where you can take a look at any field, certainly politics, definitely media. I'll throw technology in there for fun. The, the, the things that you traffic in and accept in those environments and the things, by the way, that you completely ignore uh, are, are really born of a certain kind of groupthink. Uh, and when you get in there, you realize just how deep it is. Uh, right. and, and so some of the, the conclusions you can come to uh, would only make sense to the people who are in that domain. And outside of that domain, you'd be like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, well, you know, why the right. heck are you uh, doing this or ignoring that? I mean, wow. one, one of the great frustrations I had running for president was I was talking about the automation of millions of manufacturing jobs. News organizations would act like I was speaking another language. And then there was part of me that was like, I just like make up a number, you know, I mean, it, it was 4 million, but if I was thinking to myself, like, would it make a difference to you if it was like 7 million, 8 million? Like, is there a point at which it matters? <laughs> the answer right. is that there was no threshold at which it would matter. Uh, that, that, and, and this is one of the reasons why I'm now very convinced of very negative outcomes um, for our country, because like the institutions that theoretically would stand up and say, hey, turns out we did really decimate like entire ways of life or communities or whatnot. There's no acknowledgement, no interest in acknowledging it because there's no institutional incentive to acknowledge it. Ah, yeah, that's right. That's why I think there's a crisis of, I don't think, I know, I've been tweeting about this and talking about this for years. There's a crisis of legitimacy in our institutions. Yes. And that crisis is, is, is born of a number of factors. That's also why we need new institutions. So I'll say it here for the first time ever, uh, one, I'm going to be part of a new institution, the University of Austin in Texas, and it's, it has a, an amazing board. Uh, Neil Ferguson is on that, Heather Hying, Barry Weiss, and others. Um, and so we need to build, it's not enough that we criticize or claim there's a, a crisis of legitimacy in our institutions and people have lost trust and confidence in them. We have to build something new. And so I, that's one of the things that I, one of the, my, I'm playing a, a very small role, but I'm a founding faculty member in that. But I think that that's Congratulations, really Peter. I, that's super exciting. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. It's, it's certainly not a full-time gig, but it's something that I'm very passionate about. Um, and it's a, based on free inquiry and the open exchange of ideas and actually debating people. Uh, and we're going to look at some very difficult questions that, that, are taboo in current universities. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Well, I couldn't agree more, Peter. And this is one of the things that motivates me is that you have these failing institutions that are losing legitimacy and people are losing trust and they're noticing. And there are certain people who throw stones at these institutions saying they're, uh, they're messed up and immoral, though, though the way they frame it, in my mind, is, is not precisely the way I'd approach it. Like that, they, they tend to frame it in terms of identity, where they say, look, that like, the, this is, right. the, yeah, like this institution is, uh, is excluding certain people, which it generally is. Um, but that, that that's not to me, actually, like the, the main 
failing, <laughs> like, 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 like there are other deeper failings and problems. Um, and with that as your backdrop, you do need to try and build better versions. Correct. Yeah. And that's what I've, that's one of the things that I've always respected and appreciated about you, what you've done is you've, you've generally listened to the other side and you have a, a, um, a remarkable ability to put your finger on problems that are uh, small problems now that are um, are festering or, or germinating and about to be larger problems and then address those in some constructive way. I mean, that is a unique gift. I think we've seen the what the inter internet has done with the decentralization of technologies. We now see it in the university system, but we've seen it in every, uh, you know, every uh, media, we've seen it in the record industry. Uh, it's hitting the universities now and it's hitting them hard. And you know, I'm, I'm curious if I may ask you a question. So what, what are you thinking about with the, your new party in terms of uh, K through 12 institutions of higher education? Have you worked out some of those ideas yet? We haven't really planted a flag where, our, where education is concerned, in part because if you're going to be this unifying centrist party, um, you want to, to stick to broad principles. But I, I will say that um, from my presidential campaign, uh, to me, right now, schools are among the institutions that are failing our kids the most and that we should be most deeply concerned about. Um, and that two thirds of our kids' ability to learn is determined outside of the school. So in many ways, we're actually holding our teachers to impossible standards saying, make it work, make it work. And by the way, this kid's totally stressed out and malnourished and like not in any shape to learn. And you can only control about 35% of his performance or her performance. Um, and so one of the things we should do is be investing very significantly in the other two thirds of their performance, which is try and get them into a position or a home really where they're actually able to learn and they're not going to get abused and that there's someone who will actually right. uh, read words to them when they're very young and like, like all, all of these other steps. Um, so that's something that uh, I think forwards going to be uh, pushing in part because uh, right now with, with the failures inside of school and there are a lot of ideas I have for you know how you try and improve what's going on in a classroom we can I think make more rapid progress on some of the things that are going on outside because you don't have to go through legacy institutions to your point right. about the need to build new ones yeah I'd be I'd be really interested when you um I'd be really interested. I might even be, be be interested if you're interested in having me. I'd be interested in kind of helping you formulate or think through some of those ideas about what kind of educational institutions we want. What is what should their relationship be to serving the democratic democratic interests? Or the, I don't mean the party. The lowercase d democratic. I I, I had yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. So so yeah. So I'd be interested in helping you kind of think through or formulate the, those ideas, like. Not only pedagogically, if you look at the stats, the number of people being homeschooled and not because of the pandemic has gone up tremendously. And the number of conservatives who don't trust the K through 12 system has also dramatically risen. And, and we just can't have a society that's just not healthy for democracy. It's deeply, so, un, it's I, deeply unhealthy. I think the wrong framing is reinvigorate. I think the right, the right framing is reinstore trust in our educational institutions. Well, I love and I want to hear more about what you're doing at the University of Austin. Um, but let, let's lead people to why the heck you're not at what, uh, you know, the institution you taught at for wow. um, for years and decades. So what year did you uh, publish these 
uh, farcical articles <laughs> that, that that ended up kind of demonstrating the the uh, the let's say the lack of rigor in some of these um, uh, these publications. Two thousand eighteen. Yeah, three years ago, and and I imagine there was a firestorm uh, that came yeah. down on you right right thereafter. They went utterly insane. They, they genuinely went crazy. They went. They they just had a. Yeah, so so instead of saying, oh, geez, maybe there's a problem here or, or maybe we should be more rigorous or thoughtful or maybe the peer review system needs to be, we need to take a look more carefully at this. No, it was, you know, I'm some, some type of right wing maniac or, um, you know, uh, I'm a bad person because I didn't get human subjects peer review or uh, I mean, whatever, any, anything but an honest examination of what the problem actually was which is that certain fields are motivated by ideology. They're not truth-seeking. And they're, uh, these are journals that are set up where people are discharging their moral impulses at them. You know, uh, we, we call this, uh, Brett Weinstein, so it's called idea laundering. It goes in as, an, as a, an idea, a bunch of people make an academic journal, and it comes out on the other end as knowledge. And then they point to this and they say, well, how do you know something? Well, here it is, the gold standard, peer review, it's the gold standard. And then we formulate public policy on that. And the problem is that we've now taught so many people this, we've taught a whole generation of people this, they take these, these ideas, these deranged ideas with them, and then they go to the, um, they, they go to become administrators, they become supervisors, they become leaders. Some of them become journalists, Peter, but continue. No, the journalists, and that's also lending itself to legitimacy crisis. So we did that in 2018, and the firestorm that it caused was crazy. Uh, but that's what happens when the moral mind overrides the rational mind, right? That, that's what happens when you look at the institution as a place to you know, give people their view, give people, this is the view you should hold of reality. And these are the things that are most important. And, and the, the, the interesting thing is I share many of those views, you know. That yeah, I know what you and, mean. And, and, I mean, I, I share a lot of goals with a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, uh, with certain politics. Um, but that, that doesn't seem paramount, uh, you know, in, in the scheme of things relative to some other, what I consider relatively minor, trivial <laughs> differences. You know, it's like if you have a vision for the world that includes trying to help a lot of people that are struggling. I mean, I, I feel like that, yeah. um, you know, that, that, that's the important thing. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. It seems like you've had a very, very difficult several years like what are some of the experiences that you went through before you eventually very recently said look enough is enough you know like I, i'm like this oh. is not not going to be my professional well, home anymore i knew that every instance i stayed there i compromised my integrity and and i think i i, I think it was megan kelly i said this too so you know she said was there one thing that caused you to leave because at that point everybody 
you know, my students would come and say, you just can't leave, please don't leave, we have nobody to talk to. And so I, I did feel an obligation to stay there. And I also knew that if I stayed there, uh, you know, I could bring in people to speak and I could kind of show that many of the orthodoxies, the things that people believe, they're just, they're just not true. But I, I went in, I couldn't get a, a meeting with the president of the university. I emailed him for a five minute meeting and I, I repeatedly, and I kept being told he was too busy, too busy for five minutes. So I managed to get a very brief meeting with the dean. And I, I said to the, to the then dean, Portland State University made, this is in a, a 2020's list of the um, worst schools for free speech. And the dean said to me, it's a good thing to be on those lists. And it just blew my mind. Like, you mean to tell me, even then I was harboring under the idea that, okay, you know, maybe this, this isn't necessarily a feature, it's probably still a bug, but no, you mean this is by design? By design, you wanna take away free people's freedom of speech and you want everyone to walk on eggshells and you want, you know, you don't want the students to ask questions, things that challenge the, the dominant moral orthodoxy. You mean that's by design? I didn't say that to him, but, but it, it was in that moment that I'm like, okay, I gotta leave. The only question is when. After you publicly resigned, um, you probably got some love and warmth and admiration and some people saying good riddance finally, you know, like uh, uh, that um, this right wing maniac, I think you, as you, you heard yourself described, <laughs> Uh, is, 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 is leaving campus. Uh, um, well, you know, what, what has the reaction been? It's been uh, maybe four or five weeks now, something like that. Yeah, it's been over a month. I've, I've been stunned, Andrew, by the reaction. I've been shocked. Uh, the 97, 98% positive, 1% uh, negative and 1% incoherent. You know, I mean, it's been overwhelmingly supportive and positive, like shockingly so. And the, so that's that's something else that's that's been of interest to me. So the right wing had a feeding frenzy on this story, and so this is partially how the game is played. So I put out a series of tweets. Here's a problem I'd like to talk about. So the president of Portland State University said that racial justice is the highest priority of the institution. Fact check that you can put a link to it. And uh, I, I'd like to have a conversation with people on the left. Not a debate, I'll even, you know, it's no gotcha, I'll even tell you the question beforehand. Should racial justice be the highest priority of a public institution? Nobody would have that conversation with me. CNN, NBC, MSNBC, OPB, which is the Oregon Public Broadcasting, NPR, the Oregonian, nobody, nobody wanted, nobody on the left would talk to me. So here's how the game is played. So something will happen the right will have a feeding frenzy. You go on right-wing shows, you, you, you express interest, you even call on the phone or you'll send emails or you'll make it pu public to your Twitter. Uh, please, I'd like to have this conversation with you. Nobody on the left will have a conversation with you. I shouldn't say no when I take that back. One person, uh, I've had conversations with him, his name is David Packman. He's the only person on the left who'd speak to me. Dave, and I, David, David's, David's a good guy. Yeah, he'll, he'll actually have a conversation with you which is rather remarkable. And then what happens is so many people on the left will say, uh, look, he only goes on, this proves that he's some kind of right-wing lunatic. He only goes on right-wing shows. So the, the whole game is rigged against you. You know, I, I had a, a similar experience recently where uh, I went on Tucker Carlson's show 
Um, and I have not been on any MSNBC shows. And let's just say it was not because I was turn down, turning down invitations. <laughs> you know? Right. You know, it, it right. is, there is like a strange dynamic where, where um, you, like certain organizations are more willing to have you on than certain right. others almost feel like they're protecting their audience from people who might right. uh, and end up causing them to, to question some of what they're seeing or hearing. Right. And here's here's the problem. So these ecosystems that they've created for themselves, every time you go on Tucker or I go on Tucker, uh, again, it's not only that they'll point to you and say, look, we knew we knew it. Yang was was really right wing all along. He's harboring the sentiments. That's just terrible for our democracy. That causes schisms. But, but here's the thing. Every time you point that out to somebody, you get this whataboutism. You know, people say, well, well, what about the lunatics who uh, 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 went through the Capitol? Or what about those other lunatics who went to, who think that there's an organization in the basement of a pizza parlor? Okay, well, what about them? I mean, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the media's ecosystems that we've created. And right now, it is endemic on the left. They simply will not speak to other people on the other side of the issue. And they just they just won't. Even if you tell them what the question is going to be, they won't speak to you. Nobody will talk about it. You know, you get whataboutism, you get slandered. But I do think that this problem, the right has, yes, the right has many problems. Well, well, it, yeah, I know. It, it, it's one reason, Peter, why I think we need more than two parties. Because if you have exactly. this, this duopoly and then this schism and then this whataboutism, it's like, well, I can just point to the... Uh, the crazies on that side and you know like whatever's going on over here is uh, nowhere close to that level um, and right. and people unfortunately will just lump together tens of millions of Americans with, with the most extreme people um, in, right. that, in that camp so you know right. it, it's, and, it's yeah. breaking us well it, you're right it is breaking us and the other part of that is the maniacs who invaded the capital or the people the QAnon people these people do not control our academic institutions. They do not have tenure. They do not have jobs for life. And I don't see the prospect of intellectual diversity at any time soon. We need the best arguments to be presented to our students. So, so let me just throw out something else. I um, was very involved in the new atheist movement for a long time. And uh, that was a fascinating experience. And I learned a, a tremendous amount uh, from that. I was teaching a class in atheism, uh, so so I would would you know teach them the arguments for the existence of God, but the problem is I don't believe those arguments, so I would go out of my way to have somebody come in. I had Phil Vischer from VeggieTales. I had uh, the guy who's the lead Christian apologist for the largest Corey Miller's his name Christian organization on college campuses in the country. Uh, Ratio Christie, he came in, spoke to my, we actually went on tour together. Um, but somebody wrote, Phil Smith, who's a conservative Christian, who teaches at a conservative Christian school here, wrote a lovely letter to the Oregonian. You know, Peter Bogosian had me in his classes. He was very respectful. And I tell people, look, give him your best argument, man. You believe it. And I don't say a thing. I don't ask a question. It's yeah. a, the same format. It's you deliver a lecture and then you have an hour Q&A. And our kids need that. They need people who believe, and they need to hear the best arguments. And 
possible. They need to learn how to treat people with civility and respect while being merciless on their ideas. And then they can make their own decisions. But that's yeah. not the institution we have. We don't have that. These are not truth-seeking These are not places where people go to search and to seek. They're places that people who believe they have answers go to impart those answers on people. And that is a grotesque disservice. It's the opposite of an education. It sounds like you are now part of an institution that's trying to change this. Uh, so tell us more about the University of Austin at Texas. Is this physically in yeah. Austin? I mean, in your case, you're-, you're It is. Um, so, uh, so are you going to be flying there on the regular? Uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali is the other uh, founding faculty member. There are two founding faculty members now. It is in Austin and uh, I've made that commitment, but it's only twice a year that I'll be there. And it's a very intensive time where you teach and it's, uh, it's starting for a you know, one year position. And I'm just looking at the board of advisors and the board of directors and the curriculum I've seen. It's utterly remarkable. It's everything that I would want for an education myself and for my children, how to engage ideas, how to think through what you what seem to be intractable problems, how to do so civilly, how to listen to, you know, sides of an argument that that really don't get heard, and you know the other thing is, if if you put someone in, in a in an environment long enough where they never hear the other side of the argument, and you tell them, either implicitly or explicitly, oh the people who believe this they're just bad people that's when the threshold for offense gets lower and lower and lower. And so people just become brittle and they become incapable. I don't know if you heard the Sanjay Gupta uh, uh, conversation with Joe Rogan. He just, when, you're, when your beliefs are never questioned, you just collapse, you just, you just fold when someone, someone does. So how do we create students, how do we create a more vibrant and dynamic learning community. You know, part of that is pedagogically, it's in the classroom, it's the methods that we use. But the other part is we need to create a culture that values changing your mind, civility and debate. You know, in, when I was in the New Atheist Movement, and I would, you know, I went on tour for months and months of time in Australia, New Zealand, the Bible Belt, everywhere. Uh, afterward, I would go out with, not every night, but often, you know, months on end, I would be on tour. I would go out with Christians and we would drink and we would just, you know, debate the Bible. We would debate the existence of God. Sometimes we'd hug each other. Sometimes You sound like didn't. a philosophy professor out in the world. It sounds like fun, Peter. And that's what we should do, man. That's the kind of institutions that we need to create right now. So it, I'm, I'm sick of bemoaning, oh, this is happening on the college campus. Let's build, let's, let's build a new thing. I think that that is in, yeah. in many ways, like the example we should try and set uh, I certainly believe in being more difficult to offend. Um, I personally am quite difficult to offend, which is probably a good thing given my line of work. <laughs> but, 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 right. but, but I'm also a big fan of just trying to build the better uh, version where we can see what's going on around us. There are problems right and left. And some of us have the capacity to perhaps try to show that we can do better. Um, certainly, I'm going to try and do that in, in terms of political parties and our politics. Like, I think providing some kind of multipolar version of our democracy is vital for its survival. Uh, I think this duopoly is designed to fail us and to fail. Um, so that's one of my great projects. But I'm certainly very, very excited about what you're describing with the University of Austin. Uh, and who knows? Maybe I'll come down. Maybe I'll guest lecture or something. You can uh, yeah, bring we, me on we, in when you guys yeah. are, are down we, there. 
we, yeah, we, we would absolutely love that. You know, when you, you mentioned the duopoly and, and the problems, and I think at core, we have to remember that we are all Americans. Amen, brother. Amen. And, and, and we need we need to look at these problems communally. So yes. instead of going down, down like, oh, he's Asian or he's you know Jewish or whatever, we need to go up. You know, we're Americans, we're humans, etc. You are a philosopher of the modern age, Peter. I'm so glad that you've already found uh, the the new role, the new project. You also have a Substack if people want to I do. keep up with I you do. And, and, and your findings and learnings. Is that right? I do, and I've started a nonprofit. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one of the projects that we're going to do. Uh, the first time I've announced it, it's months away, but we are. I'm going to go a tour uh, 15 universities. The first first time I've ever announced it, uh, and we're going to do a reverse Q and A where I sit in the audience and I'm going to ask people about their experiences with woke ideology and social justice, and we're partnering with student groups, and we're going to. Um, we're going to really listen to what students have to say and what their education means to them and if they feel that they're getting a good education. So uh, we're doing that. In fact, I'm going to L.A. to shoot the, uh, uh, shoot the trailer for that next week. So i got a lot of stuff going on. It's the National Progress Alliance is the name of it. Um, yeah, I have a lot of projects. I'm totally – my Substack is kind of cool. You know, I – I, I just started and it's fun. So yeah, life, uh, that's the other thing, man. Like life is very good for me right now. It's just, I was just, I'm just very happy. You know, uh, I, I wake up every day feeling great. Uh, I don't have people tormenting me. You know, when I go <laughs> places, people want, people want me to be there. It's a weird experience, man. It's like you call somebody like, oh, we can't wait for you to come. It's the exact opposite of what I got for Portland State every day. Like it was just... And so it's wonderful. I'm just really happy right now. And I actually wanted, want to um, thank you for what you've done and, and for your hard work and to let you know that I will do everything I can to support you and to have your back as we move forward. I think you have a unique contribution to make to public discourse and, and civic life. Well, Peter, right back at you. I mean, you're, you're an intellectual force in a time that genuinely needs it. <laughs> I mean, there, there aren't many people doing your work right now. And it's one reason why I feel like a lot of this is coming your way is because when people look around for someone to actually build the next generation academic institution or help question some of the orthodoxies, you would be at the top of a lot of people's list. Congratulations again on, on the new path, the Substack, the university, the tour. People can follow Peter on social media as well, I do. Peter Bogosian, thank you so much. Uh, I enjoyed this conversation a great deal. A pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you.